I'm getting older, I think. That's probably what it is. My eyes just aren't working like they used to. Yeah, I'm 30, 30, none of your business. <laughs> 36. Uh, it's good to see you guys, man. Um, so if you know the Larson family, you know that um, we've got uh, three amazing kids, my wife and uh, the newest member of our family. Uh, it's the shortest member of our family, but has the most energy. His name's Levi, and um, he is a Jack Russell Terrier. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure it should be called Jack Russell Terror, right? Because he's just, he's a, he's a crazy dog. And we had to start locking him in the kitchen because even though he's supposed to be potty trained, uh, we would come home and always in the middle of like a really nice rug, right? It's never somewhere that's easy to clean. It's always on a rug. We'd have these little surprises, you know? He loves to leave gifts for us, little brown piles of love all over and so we started locking him in the kitchen and um you know every time every once in a while you come home you got to rub his nose in it a little levi it's bad and yesterday i came home and that's what i saw it was actually worse i wish i could have gotten a picture with all of it but um he had gone through that little trash can and just just decided to litter the entire kitchen with trash it was beautiful he redecorated our kitchen for us and um so i walked in and i said levi and he goes like this, immediately, just tail tucked, ears down. And he runs over and he gets as close to the wall as he can, as far away from me as he can. And I, of course I said, shame on you. And then, I, and then I started thinking about that phrase. Because how often do we ever hear that phrase anymore? Shame on you. I mean, you might, if you're walking downtown, you see a grocery store or something and there's people out front... You know, with their suntan lotion and the hats and a sign that says, shame on big lots or shame on this construction company. And you see that right in there. They're picketing. But other than picketing, when do we talk about shame in our culture? It's not something we talk about it a lot, right? And that phrase, shame on you, like, that's a weird phrase. May, may shame be upon you. <laughs> may shame be heaped upon you may you walk through the cities with your ears down and your tail between your legs knowing that you are the mistake of God right that's like that's what shame is like in our culture but I think it's, that's about the extent of what we um, what we talk about when we talk about shame we don't talk about it a lot in culture we don't talk about it a lot in our church but shame is something we struggle with a lot, um, probably more than we realize. And some of you here today may be keenly aware of your struggle with shame. Maybe in your life, intimately, you've wrestled with shame on a daily basis. Things that other people have done to you that have caused you to feel shameful, things that you've done that you look back on with regret and remorse, things you've said, things you've thought. And others of us, as we sit here today, we might be like, yeah, go get them, Pastor. My, like my amen corner over there. He's like, yeah, that's right, right? Because, because we don't feel, all of us, that shame is something we wrestle with. I think if we're honest, a lot of us are like, yeah, it's, it's good for those people who have big anxieties and depressions. But for me, I don't really deal with it. We might be surprised to realize that underneath, just under the surface, shame is just as operable in most of our lives. And, and often we're very unaware of it. Shame is often just underneath the surface of those things we're striving for. 
striving for success, fighting for love, looking for affirmation. If you've, if you've ever felt pride in your heart, I guarantee you, just under the surface, there's shame hiding. And we're trying to make up for it with certain things. In, in our society, shame is a silent killer that lurks just beneath the surface and has infected almost everyone in some form or another, and we rarely talk about it. Uh, this week I was reading in Time Magazine as a, a story. Uh, they were starting to talk about Princess Diana, who uh, it's coming up on the 20th anniversary of her passing. And they were talking about some of the things that she did with her life to make a difference. And um, one of the things that it talked about was how uh, two years before she passed, uh, she made a huge difference in the mental health community, and specifically with people with eating disorders. Because um, as the article went to point out, and as most of you probably know, there are millions of people in the UK and the United States that struggle with bulimia, anorexia, and, and different eating disorders, right? And so, um, she had, she had stepped out and she had done something to make a difference because one of the things with eating disorders is a very small percentage of people actually go to get help. Because, and it's not because there's not options to go get help. The problem is shame. In fact, the article said one of the biggest barriers is not access to help, it's shame. And so Princess Diana in this interview had told BBC in 1995, I have the quote up here, bulimia is like a secret disease. You inflict it upon yourself because your self-esteem is at a low ebb. And you don't think you're worthy or valuable. So you fill up your stomach four or five times a day. Some do it more. And it gives you a feeling of comfort. It's like having a pair of arms around you. But it's temporary. It's temporary. And, and, and during those years that Diana spoke out publicly about her bulimia, something happened that was crazy. The rates of people seeking help for bulimia and other um, dietary disorders more than doubled in the UK. And, and they call it the Diana effect. They said, my, my Lord, she talked about it and now everybody's aware of it and people are actually seeking help, right? And then when she died in 97, those rates slowly returned to baseline and by 2000, the Diana effect had completely vanished. What's that Diana effect? What is it? It's, it's that somebody faced their shame and was bold enough to step out and it had an enormous impact on people all around them. A lot of people were treated, a lot of people were healed because someone had the guts to come out of hiding. And the article ended with this quote. It said, Diana did not set out to be a mental health advocate. She simply told her truth and her narrative resonated. These days, we could use more truth tellers like her. Why is that? It's because shame keeps us in hiding. And it keeps us from healing. Shame is a silent killer. And when somebody steps out, not only do other people start to experience healing, but they do as well. And thinking about that, I was remembering back um, a couple months ago when I dropped my daughter off in Boston. And uh, walking around the city, which if you haven't been to Boston, you should definitely put that on your bucket list. That city's amazing. The food is great. I thought it was just going to be like Irish food. This is Boston, you know, a bunch of Irish people, right? And oh my gosh, the Italian food's amazing. The churches, the historical buildings, it's, it's a beautiful city. So I'm walking around, Instagram happy. What's that? Is it wicked good? It's wicked smart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm trying, I'm trying. And um, it, was, it was a pretty dope, pretty dope place. And 
While I'm walking around after I drop Lily off at the college she's going to um, for her Iceland missions trip, um, I have 24 hours in the city. So I'm walking around shooting pictures of everything. You guys know me. I'm a nerdy Instagram guy. And, and I'm seeing all these cool Catholic churches, and they're beautiful. And I like it over here. The light's not so bright. And, um, and so I'm, I'm walking around, and all of a sudden I see this uh, – down this corridor, there's people coming in and out of a church. But it's not like one of those big sexy cathedral churches. Uh, it's some kind of Catholic church. I've never seen one like it. So I walked inside, and I was not prepared for what I experienced. Um, normally when you walk in a Catholic church in the middle of the week on a, on a, on a weekday, it, it feels kind of empty, right? You might see one or two people lighting a candle. Generally speaking, it's pretty empty. But I walk in, and I'm overwhelmed with the sound of mourning and weeping and crying. And people are praying. And there's not this, like, religious service, per se, going on. There's not... Like, the choir's not up, and, you know, the priest isn't up there getting jiggy with it up in the pulpit, right? This is just a bunch of people praying and weeping and mourning. And so I kind of felt bad. I took a couple pictures, and I felt really conspicuous. Um, and off to my right, I saw these confession booths. And there was a couple of rows of people sitting in a confession booth, uh, sitting waiting to get into the confession booth. And they're praying. And in that moment, I felt... The Holy Spirit, which the longer you walk with God, you start to recognize that voice, right? My sheep know my voice, and I just felt him say, I want you to go confess. Which is crazy, because I'm not Catholic, right? <laughs> I've never done this before. And secondly, I didn't really have like anything to confess. It wasn't like I had uh, some big secret sin or anything. I've got a DNA group. I've got uh, other elders. I've got my wife. I've got mentors. I have people that know everything about my life. But in that moment... God was telling me to go get down with a bunch of people who knew they were sinners and were waiting for confession. And so I did. And uh, it felt weird, um, I'll tell you that. And so, uh, but we sat there and we kind of would move down one by one as people would go in and then come out of the confession room. And then I started thinking, like, what am I going to say? I don't even know what to say, you know? Uh, that I feel distant from God? That I felt a little disconnected over the past year? Okay, maybe that's where I'll start. Um, and so pretty soon my time is up and I walk into the Catholic uh, confession booth and I sit down and it's just me and four walls and a screen. And I know there's probably, hopefully somebody on the other side <laughs> of that screen. And in that moment, um, he says, he says, well, can, can I help you? Would, you? would you like to confess something? Have something to confess? And I didn't know what to say. I just said, I... I felt distant from God. And the moment I said it, there was this overwhelming sense of something I don't know that I've ever felt before. It, it, was, it was this sense of shame that was crushing me. I've never felt shame like that in my life. And it was this, um, this realization that there's things in my life, things that I've done in my past, Things that have been done to me in my past that even though I know the gospel, even though I know I'm forgiven, even though I've taken those things to the cross and I've forgiven other people, even through all of that, I know I'm not my sin. I know I'm not my guilt somewhere down deep in those dark recesses of my heart floating around was this incredible sense of shame that I was carrying around with. I had no idea it was even there. And that shame was 
directing my life. It was affecting my walk with God. It was affecting, it was destroying and, and distorting my view of God. And that's, that's what I want to talk about today, this, this silent killer of shame. Because that shame, if you don't admit that you have it and you don't come face to face with it, it can keep you in hiding. It can keep you from healing. That shame can, can keep you from opening up and creating a space of grace, a place where other people can come in and take off the mask and, and be known as they are and loved as they are. And the only way that this church is ever going to be the church that God has called us to be is if we can be a room of grace. Amen? So, so that's what I feel led to talk about. And as I was preparing for this week, uh, it, uh, it was emotional, so hopefully I won't lose my stuff up here. Um, I, was, I was preparing this other sermon on uh, prejudice in the gospel, and God just totally took me totally different direction. So this is half-baked, um, so I, I pray you will uh, bear with me here. But the phrase that I want to point out from this verse we read, uh, who for the joy that was set before him, talking about Christ, endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. And I've preached this passage countless times. I love this passage. And that phrase has never stood out to me more. It's never ministered to me personally more. And I hope that God gets a hold of your heart today with what he shared with me through this phrase from his word. But the first question I want to ask to you today is where does shame come from? Where does shame come from? And yeah, the, the Bible's pretty quick to answer that, right? Shame comes from sin. That's the biblical answer. Tim Challey says it this way. He says, God has made us in such a way that sin incurs guilt and guilt generates shame. But there's a catch and a caution. Guilt and shame come in helpful forms and in paralyzingly unhelpful forms. Guilt and shame can be a good gift of God or a curse of Satan. If you think back to the story, like how it all began, you've got God in the garden, loving father, perfect relationship with his beloved kids, Adam and Eve. And the Bible says that they were naked and yeah, unashamed. And then the moment they eat the forbidden fruit, the moment they take a bite, they look down and they realize they're naked and they run for cover and they get fig leaves and they start fashioning them together and they make this like really cool like hot couture, you know, kind of covering of fig leaves for themselves. And God comes walking through the garden, right? You guys remember this story? Adam, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where they are. I think when God asks us a question, it's for our benefit. Right? It's because Adam and Eve don't know where they are. They're lost. They're hiding. They've lost themselves. They've lost their connection to one another. They've lost their connection to God. And here they are, crouched behind a bush, covered in fig leaves. Shame exists because of our inner nakedness and our attempts to cover it up. It's that place where Adam says to God, I was afraid and I hid myself. I was afraid and I hid myself. We hide because we're afraid that our real self will be seen. Scott Sauls, who's a pastor, um, he was at Redeemer in New York and then moved down to Texas. He says it this way. He says, our first parents set the tone for the rest of us. Ever since Eden, man, woman, and child has been facing a hidden battle of shame. The vague sense that there's something deeply wrong with us compels us to hide, to blame, and to run for cover. And that's the progression, right? Sin leads to guilt, 
We feel bad for what we did, and then guilt leads to shame. But what's the difference of guilt and shame? Guilt and shame. And I, I, would, I would say this. I think guilt seems to be about what we do, what we've done. But shame is about who we are. There's a book called Shame and Grace by an amazing uh, theologian named uh, Lewis Smedes, and he says this, the difference between guilt and shame is very clear. We feel guilt for what we do. We feel shame for what we are. Guilt is about what we do. Shame is about what we are. You see that? So we sin, and then we feel guilt because of it, and the guilt leads us to feel shame, and somehow we begin believing that we are what we do. Shame is about identity. Shame is about looking in the mirror and not wanting to keep looking in the mirror because you don't like what you see. Um, what is the trajectory of shame over a lifetime? What do you think about that? Living in hiding behind fig leaves. By the way, fig leaves are scratchy. Like, I don't... Anyway, <laughs> random thought. Um, there's, uh, while I was on sabbatical, I, was, I, was, uh, I had time to watch... Doc- I, I had plenty of time. Time to do whatever, right? And so I watched a documentary called American Anarchist, um, which is the story of William Powell, the guy who is the author of the Anarchist Cookbook. Has anybody ever heard of the Anarchist Cookbook? Right? Um, as, as middle schoolers, did you like read through it and like, ooh, that's how I build dynamite? Like, it's, it's a pretty ratchet book. It's got all kinds of really um, funky stuff how to do all these things at home, build bombs, guns, all this. And it's because William Powell was this kid, and you see this in his story, where he had been abused, he had been hurt, he had gone through some horrible things in his life. And when the hippie movement came, there started to be a turn somewhere there in the, in the early 70s where it went violent. It went from love to violence. And he said, you know what, we need to teach people how to be guerrilla warriors. So he wrote this book, and then he moved off to France with his wife. They teach, uh, or he just passed away a year or so ago, but they, they taught underprivileged kids. They're doing this totally different life. And this in, um, investigative reporter comes out and says, hey, man, so I want to interview you about that book you wrote. And do you realize the effect that it's had? And he said, because uh, he's kind of off the grid, you know, kind of an interesting hermit type of dude. He says, I don't, I don't really know. I know it sold some copies. And he said, well, do you know that the Unabomber had a copy in his apartment? And that the kids at Columbine that did this, that first big school shooting in Colorado, that they had a copy. And that it's been tied to countless acts of terror, domestic terror, national terror, international terror. Um, it's been tied to countless school shootings. This book is, has wreaked havoc in lives. And you see the guy's face through the interview. It's like a three-day interview change. And he's trying to like cope. He's trying to function with the realization that something he wrote back in his in his like late teens, early twenties, has caused that much destruction in the world, and uh, you you can see the shame just written all over his face. And then he starts to tell his story, and it's amazing when you hear William Powell's story and how much it connects with the stories of these shooters and these uh, domestic terrorists, uh, just kids that felt ousted, kids that said, "I don't want bullies to have the kind of reign they do anymore. I'm going to take it in my own hands." I don't want fascists to have the kind of reign they do anymore. I'm going to take it in my own hands. And it's interesting. The thing that caught my attention in this, in this novel or this uh, documentary was his second book was about a guy who uh, – you guys know World War II? Okay, maybe you know this – or I'm sorry, World War I. Maybe you know this name, uh, Gavrilo Princip. 
Gavrilo Princip. If you don't know that name, he's the guy that started World War I. He's the guy that killed Archduke Ferdinand. And he was a 19-year-old Hungarian that was lost and frustrated, had been abused, had done all these things. Very similar story to William Powell. And, and William Powell said something at the very end of this documentary that kind of tied it all together. He said he formed an identity for himself, and then he acted upon that identity. Which, of course, was William Powell's own story. It kind of summed up the whole documentary. You should definitely watch it. It was the story of all these kids that shot up schools. It was the story of people that acted in domestic terror. They, they formed an identity, and then they acted upon that identity. And that quote, like, stopped me in my tracks. And I asked myself, as I turned the documentary off, if that's true, what identity have I formed for myself? Like, we preached a series on identity. And now I'm in this moment, and I'm like, what identity do I really believe about myself? So I took out uh, my pen and paper and I just started writing things that I tend to believe about myself and I'm gonna read them to you. This is embarrassing, all right, unfiltered. You know, what's it called when you do like a mental stream and you just don't, you don't edit while you're going, you just write? Throwing up on your paper, stream of consciousness. Good, awesome, stream of thought. So that's, that's basically what I did. And here's, here's what I thought. Uh, Vince Larson, nouns and adjectives. Loving father, romantic husband, <laughs> decent preacher, <laughs> renaissance man, uh, intelligent, well-read, friendly, funny, only child, selfish, deeply spiritual, foodie, arrogant, addicted, victim, manipulative, a failure, weak, deeply flawed, unworthy of love. And then by the end, I start seeing all these broken things, you know, because I'm not editing while I'm going and I go back and I'm reading and I see all these broken things and I see all these good things and I'm like, man, these things, I would never say, like a job interview, what's three adjectives to describe yourself? Unworthy of love. Like, you know, you just don't start there. And I would never say half of these things, but some of these things were fears that I faced all of a sudden in this moment. And other of these things were fig leaves that I was using to cover up the things I was afraid of. They were projections of myself, things I wanted to believe about myself because underneath there's shame, there's guilt. There's all this stuff floating around under the surface. In that moment, I realized those are attached all the things that I'm pushing and striving to be something, trying to do something with my life, to get approval, to be a success, etc. So much of that is directly attached to my shame. The things I'm afraid of, the things I don't want others to see under the surface. These are, these are my fears. These are my fig leaves. My accomplishments have become my fig leaves. I'm hiding under them so nobody will see my nakedness and shame. I want to ask you real quick, just an aside, what, what fig leaves are you hiding under? Like if you were gonna make a list, what, what projections of yourself do you put out there? What things do you tell yourself to make yourself feel good enough? And how much of it is, is self-driven from your own goodness, from your own righteousness? And then underneath those fig leaves, what, what are some of the, those fears? What, what shame would you write if you made a list? 
that you're a victim of certain things? Would you say that you're an addict who can't break free? Would you say you're unworthy of love or afraid that you might be? What would go on your list today? But I think if we're honest, all of us have a list. We all have things that we would not want everybody to see and we all have things we used to cover those things up. And if that's true, what do we do about it? And that's the second point. Um, just come out of hiding. There's a book called The Cure. Has anybody read The Cure? Great book. And it's, it's kind of a modern day allegory and this guy, he shows up and he's walking down a path and he gets to a fork in the road and the fork in the road has two signs. And one says, uh, if you want to go down this way, this is trusting God and the other way is pleasing God. And he's like, well, that's the same thing, basically, but I'm going to go down the road to pleasing God. And he ends up, after he walks down this road for a while, at this beautiful, large home. And it's got a giant door, and on the door it says, the room of good intentions. And he walks into this room, and in this room there's all these people, and noise going on, and music playing. And, and over there he can see like a, a televangelist with a toothy smile that's preaching on TV all the time and over, over there he can see a lady who's given her life in a foreign missions field and everybody knows her name and sees all these people in this room mingling and a beautiful hostess walks up to him and goes hi, how are you doing? and he says oh, honestly I'm a little tired from the trip and the whole room stops right? and they all look at him and the music stops playing and she goes oh, give me one second she comes over, she says Here's a mask. Try this on. You might, you might like it. So he puts a mask on. And now everybody goes back to talking and playing and the music's going. And, and now he's walking around and he's, he's got a mask on. He feels comfortable in this space. Right? Um, but after a while, it starts to get sweaty under that mask. Itchy. He just wants to take it off. So a few days later, he finally, in the middle of the night, runs off as far and fast as he can and goes back to that fork in the road because he can't handle living under the mask anymore. He's tired of not being able to just be himself. He runs out because he can't handle one more moment hiding his true self. And that's the thing. I think so many of us are terrified of taking the mask off. We're terrified of taking the leaves off. What if I'm not good enough? What if I'm not lovable enough? What if people saw the real me and they said, no thanks? I mean, honestly, don't we all have things we wouldn't broadcast about ourselves? Like on Instagram or Facebook? It wouldn't be like the first post you'd make of the day. Right? Do we all have parts of our story that nobody knows? Things that we've thought, things that we've said that we would never share with anybody? And yet we show up in the morning to work or to church and we have big teethy smiles and people ask, how are you? And we say, I'm doing great. Doing awesome. Right? Oh, I'm sorry, is this heavy? This is heavy, huh? Whew, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was just thinking about that. And Nancy got back from Kyrgyzstan and she said, it's crazy there. When you sit down and you ask somebody how they're doing, they actually tell you. And then you're stuck having coffee for an hour, but it's beautiful. Right? That's so different from SoCal. And our veneer, our paper-thin veneer culture where we, where we hide and we, 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 we'll never be successful if we don't wear the mask. We'll never be loved. We'll never have the things we crave. So we hide behind our good works and we hide behind our successes and we hide behind our sexy bodies and we hide behind our perfectly curated social media profiles. And not that any of those things are bad. Because here, here's the deal. There's nothing wrong inherently with fig leaves. 
It's just what we do with them. The hiding and the, and the death and decay and the rotting that's going on underneath. My question to you today is, is, do you think that it's possible that God has something better to cover you with? That's the thing I love about that book, The Cure. At the, at the end, end of the first chapter, he goes down the other road of just trusting God. And he ends up at this room. And it's not called the room of good intentions. It's called the room of grace. And he walks in and same kind of thing. It's not as fancy and there's no masks, but everybody's having a good time and laughing and talking. And he, he shuts the door and he begins to turn around and walk back out. And the lady says, hey, where are you going? And he said, if you knew me, you wouldn't want me here in this place. I'm a big failure. And I struggle with my identity. And I forget exactly how he says it. It's way more eloquent than what I'm doing right now. But he said, and uh, I'm a, what do you say? Oh, I, I cheated on my wife. And, I, and I, I'm addicted to alcohol. You wouldn't want me in your club. And he turns around to walk out. And a voice shouts from the back. Uh, Add to that chronic porn addiction. And he turns around like, what? And the guy, the guy walks out and says, hey, brother, you're welcome here. We're just a bunch of broken people. And all of a sudden, and that's the, how the book begins because it's a journey into grace. It's a journey into being able to be raw and real with our brokenness in a community of people that don't have masks on. In a safe place where we can be known as we are and be loved as we are. One of the most powerful things in the story of Adam and Eve to me is that God doesn't come in wagging his finger and saying, Oh, Levi, shame on you, and rub his nose in the poo. When God comes and talks to Adam and Eve, he asks questions. He's patient. And he lets them feel the weight of what they've done. You know, hey, I said if you eat that fruit on that day, you will surely die. Right? And they're blame shifting and pointing fingers. And then... As he goes to lead him out the garden, notice what he does. In the same breath, he takes an animal and takes his skins and he covers them up. In the first great sin that we ever did that deserved death, we, we did not deserve God's love. In that moment, he took off the fig leaves that they had covered themselves up with and put on the skins of an animal to clothe him. It's like God is saying... Get out from behind the fig leaves. Get out from behind your, your good works and your self-projections and your hiding places and trust my work. Trust my grace. I want to cover you up with something better, something that I've made for you. My covering is better. This is a sacrifice I've made for you and I'm covering you up with and that's better. The only way you'll ever be able to fully come out of hiding is when you can trust the Father's heart and see His grace. You've got to see his love for you. If you have any hope of coming out of hiding today, if you have any hope of experiencing healing or breaking that cycle of sin to, to guilt to shame, if you have any hope of getting out from under that, you've got to see his love for you. And that's one of the things we see in the text. It says, Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so easily and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. I just, think about that phrase real quick. Lay aside the weight and the sin which clings to us so easy. That's a difficult thing to do. Have you guys ever tried to lay sin down? Anybody? I see the smiles. Cool. Not hearing much, but my eyes aren't working. Maybe my ears aren't either. I don't know. I'm getting older. 
Um, but yeah, that's, it, it's a difficult thing. And I think because one of the difficult things with laying down sin is that there's this cycle of sin that leads to guilt, that leads to shame. And then that shame perpetuates the sin. You know what I'm saying? When you're hiding shame, when you're hiding guilt underneath and it's festering and it's growing and you're holding it inside under the surface, it perpetuates the sin. Henry Nowen says it this way. The more, I'm sorry, Brennan Manning, the more guilt and shame that we have buried within ourselves, the more compelled we feel to seek relief through sin. Some of us are stuck here today in broken patterns of sin or addiction or broken mental patterns or struggles under huge negative emotions that we can't seem to shake. And it's possible that it's because underneath all the layers of stuff, deep in your identity is this feeling of unworthiness and brokenness. And the more you pile the fig leaves on, you can't handle it. You've got to find relief somehow. You've got to find escape somehow. So we go back to those places. We go back to those addictions and patterns, the, the obsessive workouts, the alcohol, the adrenaline rushes, the porn, the shopping, the binging. Anything can become a way of trying to cope with this brokenness I'm hiding and nursing deep down within. But that's not God's will for your life today. In fact, I want to boldly say something to you. I believe that God wants you to experience amazing healing today. I believe God wants to rob you of your shame today and give you grace in its place. How? I'll tell you what, it's not from muscling up and getting yourself perfectly set up to lay aside your sin. Because that, that phrase, lay aside your sin, is deceptively difficult. How do you lay aside your sin when the more you look at your sin, the more you want it? You guys know what I'm talking about? How Paul says that in Romans 7? He says, uh, I've got the scripture here. Let me say it right. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, the moment the law tells you something's bad, the more you want it. It's like... Bart Simpson in front of the chalkboard a thousand times writing, I will not break the window. I will not break the window. I will not break the window. What's he want to do the moment he stops writing? Break the window, right? He's preoccupied with it. It's like as we sit here today and I'm sweating and the humidity is in the air and I start talking about how bad for you ice cream is. You know, like vanilla ice cream and... You shouldn't even be thinking about it, you know, because vanilla ice cream, like covered in that gooey chocolate sauce, kind of on a spoon headed for your mouth. It's nice and cold and they melt together. Like, don't think about it. It's bad, right? What are you doing? You're thinking about it. We can't help it. That's how we're geared. So how in the world are we going to lay aside our sin when the more we look at our sin and assess it, the more drawn to it we are. But notice Paul doesn't tell us to look at our sins. He tells us how to lay aside our sin. He says, laying aside the weights and the sin that so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus. Right? I want to ask you a question. How many of you guys have run a marathon or a race of some kind at some point in your life? Second question, did you wear the super short shorts? I just wanted to see you. That's not part of the sermon. Um, I'm proud of you. I couldn't get away with those things. Everybody would leave the race if I was wearing short shorts. Um, but yeah, like when you run a race, where do you look? Do you stare down at your toes when you run in a race? How about looking behind you the whole time? No, you stare up at heaven. 
No, you've got, where do you keep your eyes when you're running a race? Forward, toward the goal, toward where you're headed. And that's what Paul is giving us a picture of here. He says, look where you're going, look toward the goal, look toward the finish line, look unto Jesus. And that's the third point, and I think the point that has so much hope for us today. Our hope today for, for breaking this vicious cycle of sin to guilt to shame to more sin to more guilt to more shame and it just piles on and we pile more leaves on and pretty soon we're just buried in the ground wondering how we can even breathe. Let's get, maybe get a straw up through the leaves and try to breathe. But he says our hope is looking to Jesus. That's, that's, I love that song you sang today. Through it all my eyes are on you. Through it all, my eyes are on you. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, here's, here's how the author of Hebrews paints this incredible picture. Don't miss this. Jesus, when he's going to the cross, looking forward, what's he seeing? He said, it says he's looking forward toward his future glory. Jesus kept his eyes on the same place that we should, on the glory of God. He looked through the cross to his future exaltation. He looked through the crown of thorns to the future crown that was awaiting him, right? On a day when his, our salvation would be complete and, and that would be the crowning of his head. Do you know that? Do you know that the Bible says that you're his crown? That you're the reason why he went to the cross and you are, you are the crown of his glory. It says in Zechariah 9, 6, the Lord will save his people and they will sparkle as jewels in his crown. Like his joy that he was looking forward to was you. He went to the cross, looking through the cross and the pain and the suffering, seeing you redeemed, seeing you saved and delivered. You are what he was looking to. But there was two huge obstacles in his way between him and that glory, and that was the cross and the shame. And the cross is the thing we talk about quite a bit here. The cross stands for all the pain and all the abandonment and the spiritual darkness of those hours that Jesus experienced as he, as he lunged to the finish line. And he took care of our guilt and he took care of our sin and it was removed from us and was placed on him. And the hell was poured out on Christ on the cross as he was separated from his father. For us, that's the gospel we talk about over and over. I love the way 2 Corinthians 5 says it. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like, do you believe that about yourself? When you look in the mirror, can you even see the righteousness of God there? But that's not it. There was the cross and there was the shame. And that's the thing, that's the one thing that the author of Hebrews pulls out and highlights. It's not the guilt, it's not the sin. He, he talks about the shame here. The shame was, was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. I mean, think about it. His friends ran away and abandoned him in shame. His reputation shamed him because the, the crowd is mocking him and laughing at him. And his decency is, is shaming him because now he's naked. And his comfort shaming him in torture. And the glorious dignity shamed him in this undignified, degrading reflexes as, as God in the flesh grunted and groaned and screeched. He was shamed in every way possible, infinitely more than we would ever experience. 
And the author of Hebrews says he despised the shame. And that's the main thing I want to highlight. What does it mean he despised the shame? It like stuck out to me this week as I was studying. I had to look it up. And there's this word. It's the Greek word. Kataphrenia. And it means to despise, to look down on, or to shame. So effectively, another way of saying is when Jesus despised the shame, it means he, he shamed the shame. It means as Jesus took on all of our shame and let shame do its worst to him, he put shame to shame. On the cross, Jesus is effectively saying, listen to me, shame. You, you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you're nothing. You're not going to win. I've got this. It's almost finished. I'm holding on. Shame, you've got nothing on me. In fact, shame on you, shame. You had a good run. Yeah, I know some, some of my followers, they've been overwhelmed in their identity. They've looked at things that have been done to them. And they've taken things that they've done, their words, their actions, the things they're ashamed of, and they've brought it into themselves and they started to see themselves through that lens. Maybe you said things in your heart like, yeah, I was victimized, therefore I'm a victim. Maybe you've said things in your heart like, because they wounded me, maybe I just wasn't worth being protected. Maybe you've said things like, because they've rejected me, I mustn't have deserved now I sit here under a load of shame and I am what's been done to me. And I am what I've done, what I've said, what I've thought. And Jesus says, no, you're not. Jesus says, no, I went to the cross. I bore your shame. I, I put your shame to shame to tell you that today you're not a victim. You're not the result of your actions. You're not what others have said about you. You're not what others have done to you. You're not your sin anymore. You're the very righteousness of God. You're the beauty and the purity and the goodness of God. Your shame is upon me. I took your shame. It's finished. It's finished. Jesus despising the shame means he put shame to shame. So another quick example of that is like how Jesus said death to your worst to me. And he was killed and he was put in a tomb for three days. And three days later, he got up and he walked out victorious and he left death's rotting corpse back in the tomb so that we would never have to be afraid of death again. And we would have a certain hope that one day there's a resurrection. That's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. In the same way that Jesus killed death, Jesus put shame to shame. So you don't have to worry about your future anymore. It's secure if you're in Christ. And you don't have to worry about your past anymore. It's secure if you're in Christ. Are we tracking? Man, that's what hit me this week. So what's true of Christ in the Father's eyes is true of you. I don't know if you even had time while I was talking about that list I made of myself. Uh, adjectives and nouns to even think about your own list. But if you do have time, I highly recommend it. Write out the stuff you really think about yourself. But then don't stop there. Turn the page over and start writing all the stuff that's true of Jesus. Like, what are some of the things we know that are true of Jesus? In fact, I'll invite you to jump in and share some. What are some things you know that are true of Jesus? What's that? 
He never leaves us. He's faithful because of the cross. Maybe you've been unfaithful in the past. Because of the cross, you're faithful. Because your identity is rooted in what Jesus did for you. Amen? You see how that works? Because of the cross, you're dearly loved. You're unique. You're supported by God. You're blessed beyond measure. You're guided and holy and faithful and protected and connected to the Father. You're, you're an overcomer. You're worthy. You're beloved. Because of the cross, that's what's true of you if your faith is in Christ today. God says, I'm not ashamed of you. I love you. You're my beloved. That's what it means when it says he despised the shame. He bore your shame and he put it to shame on the cross so you would not have to carry it any longer. So you and I effectively, we get to walk up to the cross and put our shame there and then look through the cross and see the identity that's ours in Christ and walk away without our shame there anymore. And um, if you will consider doing that today, shame will start to lose its grip and its power in your life. And I know this because that's what I experienced in that um, confession booth. As I sat there in Boston, wondering what I was going to say in overwhelming shame. And uh, the monk said through the screen, are you Catholic? And I was like, how do you answer? No. I'm I'm Christian. Um, I don't even know why I'm here right now. And he said, do you mind if I open the screen? We don't normally do that. I was like, uh, sh- sure, yeah. So he opens the screen. Uh, guy in his 60s with a heavy accent somewhere in Europe. I don't know. And uh, he says, I, uh, I'd like to tell you a couple things that I feel the Holy Spirit telling me to tell you. And I was like, you're Catholic. Like, you're my friend. Catholics don't feel the Holy Spirit. Just kidding. And say, I want you to know that you've done good. That you are the beloved son of God. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, oh, there it is. <laughs> he said, uh, he said uh, the fact that you're here today is a testament to God's grace at work in your life. And I want you to know that your vocation as a father and a husband is every bit as important as mine as a, as a priest. And, uh, and you're loved. And uh, so this distance you have from God, that's all these, the weight of years that's in your soul. I'm like, who, who are you? How do you know? <laughs> Thank you, God. Um, and I'm a mess. I'm ugly crying. Like, this is why everybody in the church is crying. They all came and talked to this guy. <laughs> And he said, uh, I want you to know that I absolve you of your sins. And Jesus said before he left that he gives his church authority to forgive sins. And I want you to know that you're forgiven. And I don't know how many times I've confessed sins in my life to counselors and DNA groups and my wife and other people. But some, for some reason... I don't think anybody's ever told me I was forgiven like that. That my sins were removed from me like that. And so I just, I lost it. And I, 
It was like a conversion experience. You know, like that first time when you give your heart to Jesus and you're a mess? It was like that. I'm just sitting there knowing that I'm loved, knowing that God is there present through that extension of him sitting in the other room. Just a guy, but filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking life to me. And uh, then he asked me if I knew how to do Hail Marys. (laughs) Nah, I'm probably not going to do any Hail Marys. He said, well... There's a prayer on the back of this book. It's called The Act of Contrition. Go back and read it. I did. I read the prayer, and it was beautiful, and it was all about how much God loves us and how he doesn't deserve our sin, but he loves us anyway. And I just sat in the back of that church. I had 24 hours in Boston, and I spent a good three of them in the back of a church crying my eyes out, overwhelmed with the love of God. And that wind that we were talking about, seeing the Holy Spirit blowing on our dead bones, that is what I felt blowing through the dry, dusty caverns of my soul as I got out and walked through the streets of Boston, looking like a wreck with my eyes all red and tear-stained. I felt so loved. I felt so clean. I felt so light. Because I knew in that moment that I was loved and forgiven. Even though I preached this stuff. There's a difference when you experience it. And that's my hope for all of you today, is that you would hear spoken over you that you are not your sin. That you are not the sins that have been done to you. That you are the beloved sons and daughters of God. That nothing can separate you from his love. That is, that is my prayer for you today. You're not those mean things others have said about you. You get to come down here today and feast on the life of Christ who, by the way, he didn't just pour out his blood to forgive your sins. But he lived a perfectly righteous life every day in his flesh so that you could have his righteousness. His grace is your covering. You could take off all the fig leaves and the masks and all the things we wear to protect us from the world. And we can stand naked and unashamed in the presence of God knowing that he's clothing us with the righteousness of Christ. Amen? My hope, my prayer for you today is that you could come down here and as you receive communion, you could get with somebody that you trust and you could just say, you know what, there's some stuff I've never shared with anybody else but I'm gonna share it with you and I need you to preach the gospel in my heart. I need you to remind me that I'm the dearly beloved son and daughter of God. And hear me, if we will do that today, then this church will be a place of healing. The church is not a country club for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. It's not a room of grace where we can act like we have all our stuff together and high-five each other on the way out to dinner after the service. It's a place where we can sit in one another's brokenness and say, I know you and I love you, just as you are. You don't have to fix yourself to be good enough to be my family. Amen? Let's, Let's pray. Father, I pray you would show us the areas of our life where we're carrying shame. 
And I'm so thankful that you are patient with us, not wagging your finger, not rubbing our nose in our sin. But you patiently ask us questions and you lead us along on that road to healing that may take a lifetime. It can happen in a moment miraculously. It could take a lifetime. But all of us here today, under the sound of of your voice and your word, being called to submit our lives to you and surrender to you. And all of us are carrying shame. I pray you'd show us where Show us the fig leaves and the masks we're hiding behind. Free us from fear today. Free us to confess. Free us to receive your love through one another. Jesus, I pray you would rob us of our shame today. Give us the boldness to believe that that our shame was placed on you. And that instead of hearing those voices saying, shame on you, free us to, to walk up to the cross today and say, Thank you, God, that my shame is upon you now, that I'm free. Give us boldness to take off our fig leaves and feast on the life of Christ. Put on your your grace. Holy Spirit, we sit here weak and unafraid, and I'm afraid. (laughs) I pray you give us boldness, give us freedom to make our church into a room of grace. To step out from hiding without fear, and experience the healing you have for us. We cannot do it without you. We need you in this place. I pray that over the next few minutes, you would do miraculous things in people's lives. That people under the sound of my voice would be freed once and for all from guilt and shame they're carrying. That we would shed some leaves and get rid of masks and experience freedom in your grace. In Jesus' name.